Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with Brother Matthias, and we're going to be talking about spirituality and Freemasonry tonight, which, at least in my opinion, uh, are two inseparable topics. My spirituality and my Freemasonry are intertwined inexorably. I couldn't possibly ever separate those two, but we're going to delve a little deeper tonight into what it means to have spirituality integrated into Freemasonry. Brother Axel, what do you what do you think is the core crux of Freemasonry? I mean, we talk about spirituality in Freemasonry, but you know, there's there's esoteric Freemasonry, there's charitable Freemasonry, there's political Freemasonry, there's all sorts of flavors of Freemasonry worldwide. Is one better than the other? Are they just different? And and where does spirituality um, where's its place amongst all these different flavors? To me, spirituality is right at the essence of Freemasonry, because all of those different flavors that you're talking about, you know, um, esoteric Freemasonry, political Freemasonry, charitable Freemasonry, these are just, to me, they're just surface manifestations of what Freemasonry really is. And, you know, there's a pretty corny saying out there that the purpose of Freemasonry is to make good men better, right? I think that's really archaic and very limited and doesn't really address the scope of what that phrase itself is trying to say, but it does to me point in the right direction. It's making human beings better than they are. And what is that? Well, that's evolution. Freemasonry exists to speed up evolution in the people that experience it. And for me, that's an inherently spiritual process that all changes in the human being begin in the spirit and then are manifested outwards. But that, I think, is what Freemasonry has recognized is that that's what sits at the core of what makes a human being. So if that can be changed, then all the other external parts of a human being, the, the part that's political, the part that's charitable, the part that's philosophical, you know, that can come later. But really what it exists to do is to work on the spirit. I don't necessarily disagree with the concept of making good men better or making humans better. But I really don't actually think that's really at the crux or core of Freemasonry. I think all too often we have been led down this road in Freemasonry of self-improvement and, you know, self-help, etc., etc. I think to some degree the spirituality that we find in Freemasonry is of a different level. It is a level of service. We are servants of the universe. We're servants of God. We work to his glory and his glory alone and in that it's not really about us yeah yeah we, we will we will have a byproduct in the service of improving evolving of being more educated but i think all too often we're, we get so wrapped up in ourselves it becomes a selfish endeavor and i think masonry is not selfishness at all it is it's the pure love of service of self-sacrifice towards a common goal and purpose, which is 
the perfection of humanity. So, Brother Matias, where did this focus on the self come from? Because it doesn't seem like if we go back into the history of Masonry, the writings of, you know, early Masons, they're saying all this stuff. So where did it where did we start focusing on this whole making good men better thing on self-improvement? Where, where did that become the focus of Freemasonry? I think that's a 20th century, you know, sales pitch in order to get more members because people didn't understand what was the purpose of joining Freemasonry. It went from an elite group of human beings working towards this common purpose and goal to, well, we need to collect all this dues so that we can continue to run our grand lodges, maintain all these vast buildings. It turned from something that was sacred into something that, in my opinion, has become a little profane. And that's interesting because you can kind of, you can see that effect in other institutions of society along the same timeline in the 20th century. We go from, for example, at least in the United States, of being a country that's based on ideals to one that's overtaken by bureaucracy, right? With the creation of central banks, et cetera. Like our bureaucracy keeps increasing. It becomes about, you know, the individual in the society as opposed to a society that is created to accomplish great things. Freemasonry was the beehive and we were the bees working towards the glory of the queen symbolically. That's not the society we live in anymore. You know, recently I went to China um, and it's a completely different world out east and the one thing that I, that really impressed me was that, that the whole society seems to be working in a very fluid fashion towards the goals of the people's republic of china you know and there the construction i saw in china in 5 days exceeded what i see in america for years and years and years the amount of buildings and bridges and roads being built and how fast even what I saw completed in five days was absolutely astonishing but they're like busy little bees working to some great goal and and I don't think we quite have that cohesion here in the West well now that I think about it too like our our very concept of spirituality has become an individual pursuit as opposed to something that builds up a community something that builds bonds that converts others that strengthens and enlarges a community which is in my impression what religion used to be several hundred years ago that was kind of the goal of religion was to enlarge the community but if we look at spirituality as most people would think of it today what is that well that's the individual you know exploring yoga or meditation practices to be spiritual is to be on an individual quest it's not really about involving yourself with other people whereas i think at one point that was what that was human spirituality was to bring people together under the banner of a cause or a project or something like that no i absolutely agree we're very selfish in our spiritual endeavors. A lot of times when I talk to people that are inquiring into universal co-masonry, they ask me, well, what can I get out of it? And I don't necessarily think that's a bad question, but when it's the first question, I'm like, well, I ask them back, well, what is it that you're going to offer us? Because we're not here just to give, you know? We're not a cow giving out milk and meat for the populace, like there has to be a reciprocation of what it is that you can give to the group. I, I think both facets are very important, but all too often, I never hear anybody saying what they're going to offer. I only hear, well, what can I get out of it? What am I going to learn? What am I going to gain? As if Freemasonry has this grand secret that you can just buy or, you know, I don't know, be suddenly enlightened. 
Well, I think this goes along with the idea that I think we've lost generally is the conception that spirituality involves a lot of hard work, that a path laid out might be simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. You know, if I think of Christianity, for example, the Bible is full of examples of Christ saying that, you know, follow me, I am the way. It's it's very easy, the path, that, or very simple and straightforward, the path he's laying out. But there's also the motif of struggle, of wrestling with God, like Jacob on the hilltop. You know, you find it in Islam, too. This idea of jihad, of holy war against oneself and one's vices. Or, I mean, it's it's present in the Jewish religion. You know, this idea that if something is going wrong, it's because you have broken the covenant with God because you haven't been working hard enough, you haven't been fulfilling your end of the bargain. I think we've lost that. When we think of spirituality, we don't think of something we have to work for. We think of something that we have to acquire by reading the right book or, or having the right person tell us the right thing at the right time, as opposed to you know going down into the bowels of the earth ourselves and bringing something back. Freemasonry is not a religion. It has religious practices, but it is not a religion. And in that, each of us, in our own individual way, have to develop our own sense of morality, of what is right and wrong in life. And so in that way, it is selfish. But we're in a group working towards a common purpose, which is the glory of God, which, let's, let's go off on this tangent for a moment, because I've heard a lot of people say, well, what's the glory of God? And, you know, God doesn't need anyone to worship him. I frankly agree with that. I don't think God needs us to worship him. I'm not even sure God uh, is a person or in any way um, can communicate with us in, in, in a way that's very tangible, right? Mm-hmm. But I still believe in the phrase, we work to the glory of God, because I think the glory of God is the fulfillment of the plan. It is the fulfillment of the grand design of the universe. If we believe in the tracing boards of masonry, then we have to believe that nature is our grand tracing board. And within it are the pieces, the, the, the clues by which for us to create the best society, by which to actuate ourselves into what we are to become through evolution. So I think the glory of God is the fulfillment of the plan. It, to me, that's just seems obvious and it's a simple way of looking at it because I don't think we have to grovel before the feet of God because if he created us then why would he need us to worship him then he'd be a slave master and I certainly don't think God is a slave master well and it's it's fulfillment of the plan but it's but part of the fulfillment of that plan is humanity taking its place as participators in fulfilling that plan, as opposed to, you know, this captive audience that you're talking about that's just having the plan laid out before them. You know, I think every every concept of, you know, religion has the idea of a divine plan, of a, a plan of creation, if you will, or a, or a creator that has an idea of how things should unfold. What I think is different about the spirituality of Freemasonry, what's kind of, to me, built into Freemasonry, is the idea, not only, A, there is a plan, it's in nature, here are the symbols by which you can recognize it. And B, you are to take your place as a co-worker, as a co-builder of this plan. You're right. I think I think God, whatever that is, disdains worshipers. He wants workers, creators, mm-hmm. co-workers, you know, people that can share in the vision of the plan and be so inspired to help fulfill it on their own without having to be told you know, while they're on their knees worshiping what it is that they have to do. It's people that can see the plan and who voluntarily take up tools to help work on the building. 
Well, in addition to that, and I, I totally agree with you, Brother Axel, the fulfillment of the plan is, is the building of something. It, it's towards a goal, a single goal, typically. So if we talk about the glory of the United States, or the glory of Rome, or the glory of Egypt, what does that mean? It meant something that we can all see in our heads very easily. It's, it is the perfection of the state. It's the perfection of its citizens, of, of, of the subjects, of, of the rulership. It's, it's creating something in which there is abundance and happiness. It's very easy when we, we take it to that tangible level, right? To that, to that mundane level. So when we apply this to this universal level of, of God and existence, then we're talking about the perfection of all life, of all consciousness. To me, it's very easily applied when we look at the, at the micro and then we apply it now to the macro. Well, and there's another thing there too, which I, I think there's a reason when we talk about fulfilling the spiritual plan that the idea of the perfection of the state comes to mind. Because to me, the ideas are very related in the hermetic sense that you're talking about there, you know, the as above, so below. To me, God and nature, which are somewhat indistinguishable, they represent hierarchy. To me, that's a that's an element of what God is, is, is a a hierarchy of how nature operates, right? From the first principle of creation down to the minutia of created existence, right? There's a hierarchy that proceeds from one end to the other that creates different things along the way. So when we look at the state, that's a human reflection of that hierarchy. And I think that civilization itself is a part of fulfilling the divine plan, that that perfecting civilization, progressing upwards through the hierarchy of nature is the human path towards the glory of God. Uh, so let's pivot off that point, and I think we should try to discuss three things tonight. Prayer, meditation, and worship. Which some of these kind of overlap, but I think, you know, we're talking about spirituality. I think these are three ways of looking uh, through the spiritual lens of Freemasonry. So let's, let's start with the power of prayer. I didn't grow up in a religion, so I'm not a guy that sits every night at the edge of my bed and puts my hands together and says, Oh God, you know, thank you for the many blessings I've received. But I do believe prayer is a powerful tool. And I think there are different ways to do it. And so for the person that does kneel by their bed and does it in what we think in the traditional manner, I think it's just as powerful as someone that does a silent prayer. I think the whole idea is that we're talking to God. Not that God is necessarily listening. Maybe we're only talking to ourselves, the divinity within. But it's in the process of having this, uh, this conversation. And sometimes I think actually the verbalization may be actually more powerful than the silent prayer. You're making the word manifest. We're making it flesh. So we're saying things, and even if it's just we're talking to ourselves, it is a call to action. Well, we're imbuing those words with divinity, you know, whether or not we're reflecting it to the divinity within ourselves or there is, you know, some kind of external creator that's listening. It, does, it doesn't really matter how you conceive of it. It's it's you're attaching word divinity to words. And that's a powerful thing to do. That's and whether or not it's in your head or not, it, it doesn't matter. That has motivated some of the greatest acts of human history. That has produced some of the greatest acts of humanity itself, of mercy, of love, and of kindness. That conversation. And to go back to your, your very first point, that's the first act towards acknowledging something beyond yourself. 
Because if you're having a conversation with what you believe to be God, well, then you're not alone in the universe. This is not some kind of nihilistic hallucination that you're having. And, you know, everyone else is just a figment of your imagination. If you are praying, you're acknowledging another presence in the universe, that it's not just you. And that there's, there are things that are more powerful than you, things that are beyond you, things that you wish to understand and communicate with. And that's the first step in building a relationship. I mean, if we look at it on the human level, what's the first thing you do with somebody as you're becoming friends? You talk to them. You say, hey, I'm Axel. I'm Matthias. Nice to meet you. You know, the first thing we do is communicate verbally. We're verbal creatures. That's how information is passed through us. So yeah. prayer is the first act of conversation with God. It's, it's you introducing yourself to God. Well, I can be sorry for something I've done to you, Brother Axel. And I can say this, this, uh, this apology in my head. And I can be very apologetic and ashamed of what I've done. But I need to verbalize it. It's not completed until I verbalize it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that we can think, and that's powerful. That's the beginning. But until it's verbalized, it's not made manifest. And in a Masonic Lodge, we open and close every lodge by invoking the highest. Mm -hmm. We're not asking for treasures. We're not asking you know, for things to go our way. We're invoking the highest principles. And I once heard someone tell me that we invoke in order to evoke mm -hmm. so we have to begin by invoking the highest and so if you don't want to call it god that's fine let's just call it the highest whatever you believe that to be and it can be anything it can be a person it could be a pantheon it could just be the totality of all existence of matter and space and energy but we invoke the highest in order to evoke mm -hmm. these great things well in the establishment of that connection is imperative because if you i mean if you look at a lot of religious philosophy specifically christian theology there's the idea that we do not do things for god god does things through us and i think that's a very interesting idea especially when you look at it from the masonic perspective of invoking the highest why do we do that we do that so that the highest can work through us Right. The lowest, if you want to not in the sense of like on a moral scale, but like we are at the lowest or the densest portion of reality and we're invoking the least dense portion of reality to try to get those two opposite ends to meld together, to create something beautiful, to create something new, to to we are helping God as much as God is helping us by bringing God into the world that he or it or whatever has created by bringing God into its own creation. We assist God in experiencing its own glory. Prayer doesn't have to be silly. It doesn't have to be laughed at. It doesn't have to be a function of the church. Prayer, I think, is, is in the fabric of our DNA. It's something that we do. And I've known atheists that on their deathbed pray because at the end, in our most desperate moments, there's this sort of almost impulse to pray. Well, there's that old saying, there's no atheists in a foxhole, right? Like when we're under extreme stress and difficulty and danger and our lives are threatened, like we, we all seem to have this switch in us that when we are pushed to the brink in our, in our human experience, that this connection seems to be opened in almost everybody. You know, no matter how committed the atheist is, they will still pray if their life is threatened. You know, if, if, if their human experience is pushed to such a raw edge that they, they find themselves 
you know, having to commune with this thing, having to make space for this thing, because it's in all of us, no matter how much we might deny it or reason our way around or out of interacting with it. And I think that's why, you know, prayer is regarded with as silly or laughed at, especially by the uh, by the atheist crowd is because once you open that connection, you can't then close that connection, or at least it's very difficult to know that it's there, you know, and not interact with it as part of your life. That that makes you feel, I think, a little, and I'm generalizing, it's a little shady to like open that and then be like, oh, no, I'll just laugh that off. But there's always a suspicion in the back of your mind, like, what is that connection? What what could that be if I opened that up and nurtured that? And I think that's why it's kind of laughed at almost uncomfortably, because people that do pray seem to have a... Um, and some, not, I mean, everybody is always different, but prayer seems to open up a, a certain serenity in your life in certain aspects of how you view the world and how you go through life with the assistance of prayer. And I think to those that don't have that or scorn, you know, opening that up, that's a little, a little threatening to the worldview. When I've been overseas and I've attended atheist uh, Masonic lodges, there was a huge sense of brotherhood, very kind very warm and opening and welcoming, uh, even even though these were lodges of different languages that I couldn't even understand what they were saying, but I, because I've been in enough Masonic rituals, I could sort of follow along. But these lodges lacked the invocations, and, and honestly, at least for me, and, and, and this may only be me, um, my perception, there was something missing. There was an emptiness. Even with the Brotherhood, even with you know the same movements around lodge and the same accoutrements and furniture there was still something that was missing and it was prayer it was invoking the highest at the opening and closing of the meeting that i think made it a little more empty for me so let's talk about meditation brother matthias when we hear the word meditation we don't immediately think of a Masonic Lodge. You'd think more of a, like a Buddhist temple or something like that. But to me, meditation is a mental tool. It's a method of focusing the human mind. Right After this uh, invocation happens, we've summoned down the highest into the lowest, you know, to use that analogy. What then do we do with that? How do we direct that? I think that's where meditation comes in. Um, meditation in some practices is seen as an emptying of the mind, but in others, it's a way of concentrating the mind, of filling the mind with one thing, you know, and if we're to take on the analogy of masonry as a beehive and us as individual bees within that beehive, a bee is focused completely on whatever its task is. It doesn't really have a choice. That's just the instinct of the animal, but human beings, our minds are much more scattered. They can be incredibly powerful, but only when we focus them. And I think that's where meditation has a place in, in the Masonic ritual. Well, I think meditation is a critical element of Masonry. Um, the organization we belong to, obviously, we meditate and lodge at every meeting and at different points for different reasons. And that allows the members of the lodges, you said, to focus. So uh, it is an emptying of the mind. We have to empty our minds. We, we can't be thinking about... Uh, the football game this Sunday. Mm -hmm. We can't be thinking about work or our love life or our problems. Otherwise, we're not present. And if we're not present, we're not focused. So we're invoking the highest. We're invoking things like love and justice. 
wisdom, temperance, fortitude. These things then need to be brought into the lodge through meditation. So then we have to focus. And how do we focus? Well, we have a ritual. So at every given moment, we have something to focus there on. Is, there's a focal point. you know. Exactly. So, you know, it may be the lighting of the candles at the, the preliminary part of the ceremony. It may be when we're, all the officers are being called to order. It may be the journeys of the candidate. It may be the obligation. But at all these points, I believe, I strongly believe, that all the members are supposed to be focused on that one thing. So if the, if the candidate, if the profane, if the neophyte is taking their obligation, then we ourselves are part of that. Mm-hmm. Our thought is only on the obligation, its meaning, and its power. So when you have a group of people focusing on a single idea, it creates something. Like you said, it's the evoking of what we have invoked from on high. Well, and it's interesting that we do... we. We take that idea and we manifest it in our technology. Like the internet is an example of using multiple thinking machines to think of the same thing at the same time for a more powerful effect. We recognize this as as a method of creating things with our technology. And I think too, you know, it's been said nature abhors a vacuum. I don't think, or at least in my experience, it's been very difficult to attain a completely empty mind. The way you empty your mind of things that you don't that don't have a place in in the activity that you're currently engaged in is the same way that you would empty a glass of oil with water. You fill it with water, which would push out the oil or whichever one's heavier. I'm not really sure, but you you fill it to empty it. It's kind of a paradoxical statement. You have to replace everything in your mind with a single thing because your mind is always active it's always moving that's that's what it's there for that's what it's evolved to do so by pushing all of the extraneous elements that you don't need at the moment out and filling it completely with a single concept your mind becomes more powerful for the activity that you're working on what's really interesting about that is that they've hooked up buddhist monks you know um all sorts of sensors to to their brains while they engage in their deep meditations and what's interesting is that it light the whole brain lights up so all the different departments the nodes of the brain are are functioning which usually you know at any given moment not all of your brain is working there are very few things that engage all portions of your brain music is one of them but meditation when properly performed is another one that sort of lights up the whole brain the other one is uh LSD, you know, and there's so there's these different things that can occur that makes your entire brain work. So as you were kind of saying there, uh, on a scientific level, you know, when 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 you're engaged in meditation, it's you're you're filling it all up. It's all being worked. It's emptying out all these things that we, you know, who cares about all these things that we're going to encounter next week? All these anxieties, all these problems we have in life, we're going to face them. But at this given moment, we need to focus on something higher. Well, and I like the thought, too, of, of making your whole brain light up. Because if we, if we expand that out into the Masonic Lodge, well, if everybody's focused on the same thing, and each officer, each, each, uh, each mason in the lodge represents a different portion of an organism or a brain, for example, then each of these things, if they're focused all together then the Masonic brain, so to speak, the mega brain, 
is is lighting up. It's all there. It's all present. It's all working towards one thing. It's completely consumed in in one ideal. You know, all these all these areas in it are functioning towards the same end. I think that's kind of like um, a macro version of what we're of what each individual within the lodge is doing within their own mind. So when we take prayer where we're invoking, then we evoke it through our meditations, the focus, the lighting up of our brain, it's concentration, and we're doing this en masse with all the members of the lodge, I think it leads to worship. And what is worship? Worship is service. So when we've brought these high ideals from on high down to the lowest, we've concentrated our minds, we've, we've evacuated all the anxiety and the nonsense we think about all day, we're now ready to serve. And service is worship. Worship isn't going to church and praising God. It's not kneeling before an altar. Worship is service. It is doing the good work. It is helping our fellow man. It is erecting a building. It is creating an invention. It's coming up with a mathematical formula. It's science. It's psychology. It's all the great works of civilization. That's worship. Because as we kind of circle back on what we've said, civilization is a microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. So as we build our civilization, as we serve one another in times of need, of joy and sorrow, we are worshiping existence. And I love what you just said right at the end there. The worship of existence is the participation in existence. It's what we were talking about earlier. We've been forming through prayer, through meditation, and now finally through worship, we've been forming a conduit that we talked about earlier from the highest down to the lowest or the densest or where, wherever we are. There's something higher than where we are and there's where we are. And we're trying to create a, a, a method, a channel for whatever is beyond us to come down through us and into where we are. And that's the worship aspect. That's the physical aspect. That's the, the serving of what we've invoked and evoked and now are expressing. That's what real worship is. It's going to your brother in a time of need. It's building something for this cause that you've pledged yourself to. It's participating in the development of society, of civilization, and the unfoldment of the divine plan. It's the building of King Solomon's temple. It started with a prayer yeah, to God. They were, they were actually building a building. You know? they're, they're, they weren't just praying. <laughs> but, but it starts with prayer. Yes. It starts with, with this connection between David and then Solomon and the great architect of the universe. And then the meditation aspect is the planning. It's the concentration of these ideas that were imbued by God down into the wisdom of Solomon. And then it's actuated in worship through the construction, which is the whole Masonic story. Which too, like if kind of, you know, semantically, if you play with it, like worship is only possible because people built temples. Things were built in order for it. Like if you look at the way most religion practices, they go to a place that was built for a purpose of worship. So all worship is only possible because people went out and built things that like the final end result of, of a congregation kneeling in prayer together, that's only one portion of the worship. The worship itself was the actual erection of the monument, of, of the resting house of God. Worship is two words, war and ship, or worthy ship, or the state of being worthy. That's what being a Mason is. It's, it's the action of being worthy. 
It's something we do. We pick up working tools. We build society. We establish foundations. This is worship. It's not sitting in a church at a pew and singing hymns, which I love, by the way, but I just don't think that's worship. It's when we are out laboring in the fields. It's a continuous state of being. It's something that you would apply to somebody's life or somebody's actions retroactively in observance. Like if I were to look at you, I'd be like, oh, he's worshiping. Like he's being worthy right now. He's out building things. He's out working to the glory of God and, and, the, and the perfection of humanity. That's It's something that it's not an, uh, an end. It's not a finite action that one commits at the end of the night or on a Sunday evening. It's a continual state that's either expressed in your life or isn't expressed. And it's not really something you say, oh, I'm worshiping right now. It's like, well, every moment of your life is an act of worship. What do you worship? What do you find worthy? What do you pay renown to? Because everything you do, you're worshiping something. Are you worshiping the highest? Are you worshiping the lowest? Are you not really paying attention and just worshiping whatever is coming along? Like, we're always acting, which means we're always acting towards something. And it's what we're acting towards that defines what we're worshiping. But to be worthy is only to serve the highest. Whatever that you believe that to be as an individual, you must be serving the highest. I think the altar that we worship of is the universe. So... When I'm working, when I'm learning, when I'm helping, I'm in the state of worship. I'm in the state of being a worshipful person. And I think that's why we need to get out of this idea that we have to go to a special place. The lodge is only as holy as the people in it. You know, as we increase in virtue, so does the lodge improve. The lodge itself doesn't make us virtuous well and what is the masonic lodge you know the the actual building within which we meet you know the the brick and mortar the the interior fittings like that's not the lodge that's a representation of a masonic lodge that's the symbol of a masonic lodge but a masonic lodge as we're all taught is infinite in its covering it stretches infinitely from east to west, from north to south. Its canopy is open to the heavens, and its floor descends to the center of the earth. It's everything. We are always in lodge. We are always invoking, evoking, and worshiping. Every step that we take, every, every breath that we draw in is an act of worship towards something. And I think you're right. It's do we dedicate ourselves to the highest? And there's two, op- there's two options for not. It's you either haven't recognized the highest, you don't know that it's there, or you know that there's the highest, you choose not to worship the highest, choose not to act towards the highest. That, I think, is the true act of evil. It doesn't really matter what your conception of the highest is. If you have a conception of the highest and you work against that, that's what evil is. You know, And that's where we can kind of like, draw a distinction between good and evil without really, you know, judging someone's personal morality is like, do you find something to be the highest ideal in life? And do you serve that? Or do you recognize something like that and not serve that? I mean, basically, do you follow your own beliefs? Hmm. It's not for us to dictate other people's beliefs. But if somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, well, then be a Christian, act like a Christian. If someone says they're a Muslim, then be a Muslim. Act as a Muslim. 
If someone I, says they're a Freemason, act as one. Act as one. The one thing I disrespect more in life are people that attest to be things and then they're hypocrites about it. You know, there are people that are very Catholic, I know, and they go to Mass every day and, and they follow it. And I have the greatest respect for them. I don't believe in any of that. But that's irrelevant what I believe. I respect them because they follow what they say. They're following what they think is the highest. They're following their calling in life. And so to wrap this all back in, prayer, meditation, and worship are, are three spokes that turn upon each other that move us forward in our Masonic careers. It's seen in the lodge. It's seen in our ritual. It's seen in the symbolism that we adhere to. And this drives us back to, is there spirituality in Freemasonry? Well, without it, I don't think there's masonry. I think that's a landmark. If, if there's a lodge without any spirituality, it's not masonry. It's just a club. And that's fine. But it ain't masonry. Masonry is spirituality. And the charitableness, the philosophy, all these things are but working tools of the lodge. I think lodges can be sort of, you know, geared towards different objectives. But it has to start with the heart, and the heart is spirituality. No, I absolutely agree. I, I would say that spirituality is the heart of every human being. And Freemasonry is unique in that it recognizes that. It provides an environment for that seed to grow. And to grow in a garden, to grow with other plants, to form an ecosystem. That's really what I think Masonry is pointing us towards. It's that... Yes, you are growing, you are improving, you are becoming something more, but so are the others around you. And when you can see the garden from the perspective of the gardener and not from the perspective of the individual plants that make it up, then the glory of God and the perfection of humanity starts to become apparent. I'd like to end on one point, Brother Axel, which is the word spirituality. It's something that people throw around all the time. Right? You know, this person says they're spiritual. You know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. In some ways, I think it's a semantical game that we play with ourselves and with others. To me, and I would like to define this word, because I've asked a lot of people over the years, well, what does spirituality mean to you? And I can't get a real definition. It's a word we use, and I don't think we really understand its meaning. And for me, the word means finding the essence. It's, it's being, being spiritual is to find the spirit. And it's, it's not to get the facts. It's not to know the how and the what, but the why. So spirituality is trying to get to the core and to the crux of a thing. So a spiritual person is always looking for the real meaning, the why behind a thing. Whether it be a law of nature, whether it be in an intimate relationship with another person, is we're trying to get to the why. The how and the what, they're important. But that has nothing to do with spirituality. We have to find the spirit. And so this whole conversation has been, what is at the core of masonry? The core of masonry is spirituality. Therefore, the core of masonry is to find the essence of existence. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity. 
that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.